Good morning. Good morning. I know sometimes it's not really clear if when somebody up here says, like, asks a question that you're supposed to answer it or not. But one last time, good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be here with you all to worship the Lord uh, this morning. It's been a while since I've had the privilege uh, of preaching uh, for New Vision. Uh, it's such a joy to, to share the pulpit and to, to share for the Word of God. Today we're uh, continuing on in our series called Practicing Devotion. And uh, forgive me, I'm honestly not used to using tech in my sermon. So if I fumble, if the wrong thing is up, please just forgive me. Uh, but today we're continuing in our series called Practicing Devotion, where we're learning to grow in our, our sense of devotion and sense of living life with God. If you were here with us from the beginning, Pastor Martin preached on habits uh, early on, and I, I shared with him the sermon that we're talking about. What we're talking about today is actually like Habits 2.0. Today, uh, I've entitled the sermon, The Liturgy of Life. And we're talking about our rhythms, uh, our lifestyles, right, the way we think about time. And so there are a few things that I want to say regarding this topic. The first is this, that it's so important for us to think about. See, we live in a world and a society that just keeps on getting faster and faster. Right? We've got technology, technological advances and, and all of these tools to speed things up, but instead of learning to speed up and be content, we just learn to go faster and faster, get busier and busier, and constantly feel like we're running out of time. There's a Christian author named Robert Banks, and he wrote this book called The Tyranny of Time. And he talks about this problem of how we're, we're constantly busy and just getting busier. And he said that it's at the detriment of our physical and psychological health, our social lives, and even our view of spirituality. And actually, the example of our culture that he uses is to talk about work and drinking. In our work, we're, we're taught to run faster and faster, to achieve the next thing, to keep on going, to never slow down. And he said this, that in America, a lot of the culture around work and drinking, people leave work feeling exhausted, feeling like they've just gone at their fastest pace, and the feeling of slowing down is so uncomfortable that in order to bridge the gap between work and leisure, they need some help. And so they turn to different substances, they turn to different things, other than just sitting and, and figuring things out and slowing down their pace, they find tools to avoid them. I think an equivalent problem is our issue with Netflix and watching so many binge-watching Netflix and, and all of these different shows. So many, and I'm guilty as well, so don't feel so bad. There are times when we can't sleep and what do we do? We turn on an episode, just watch one more. And really, it's not so much that we need to watch the show or we enjoy so much of what we're watching, maybe some of you do, but when it happens to me, I know for sure it's because I can't stand just being silent and I'm stressed and I need to handle and figure things out, but instead, it's easier to turn to Netflix. We live in a day that's so rushed and unbelievably busy, and so it's so important for us to talk about time. Second thing I want to say is that it's actually very hard to talk about time in our day. Money is hard to talk about, religion is hard to talk about, time is this unspoken taboo topic. It's a trump card, almost irrefutable reason when you tell someone, I have no time. They ask them, can you do something for me? If you're free, I have no time. The conversation kind of ends there. And sometimes it's true that we don't have time, but generally it becomes this kind of generic, 
irrefutable response. The third thing I want to say is that it's hard to actually do anything about it. We can learn about time and why we need to be intentional with it and how we can cherish it more in different areas of our lives, but to actually bring change is a completely different challenge. And this is true of other areas, not just spirituality, but in fitness, in, in health, nutrition, diet, right? That's why these industries are booming. That's why on New Year's, we all make these resolutions and gym membership skyrockets. And by March, it's just, it's a ghost town. The same is true for our spirituality. And that's why when we decided to talk about a first-hand spirituality, I told Pastor Martin, yes, that is a phenomenal idea. That is something that is so relevant for all of us, especially those living in an area like New York. New York, especially urban areas, we're taught to run, run, keep running. And if we're not, if we take time to slow down, we're almost wasting our time. And it's this lie that we're told, not by anyone specifically, but by the culture around us. And so I've entitled this sermon, The Liturgy of Life. The word liturgy typically refers to the order of a worship service. And what's included in a worship service and how a service is led is actually says a lot about what the values and beliefs are. Even more, the things that are not included can also speak to the values. But there are churches with explicit liturgies, and if you grew up in a Presbyterian background or have been to a church uh, that does this, you know that they have, they can go very detailed in what they're going to do. They can give you all of it in writing to know exactly what you're reading, to know exactly when to stand, when to sit, when to speak, and when to be silent. And everything included is very well thought out and very intentional to show their values. At the same time, we have churches where liturgy is actually more implicit. Or maybe it's not stated. And you're led through a service. And it's harder to catch the details of what's being included and what's not. But it's still there. Our church, we kind of sit in the middle. We have slides to help you know what's coming up. But we don't give you express direction through writing and things like that. So we sit somewhere in the middle. But even our service, what we include shows what we value. How we do things show what we value. The same can be said about our lives in this sense of liturgy of life. Whether it's intentional and mapped out or unintentional and kind of running on autopilot, the things that we include speak to our values. Today, the challenge is to think intentionally about our rhythms, our views of time, and what it means to worship God with our time. The text that was read today talks about Sabbath talks about Sabbath, and I want to pause right here because it's from the Ten Commandments, and a few weeks ago, Pastor Martin actually pulled a really quick card and said, how many of you could recite the Ten Commandments in order, and the room kind of got like this awkward silence where people were kind of smiling but not really sure and kind of looking to the left and to the right to wonder who could actually do this, could I do it, I think I could, maybe not in order. And actually, when I was in seminary, in my first year, there was this professor, her name was Carol Kaminsky. She taught Old Testament and did a phenomenal job. And on the first day of class, what she decided to do was ask the same question. And guess what happened? In a room full of first-year seminary students, that same awkward, nervous, chuckly, glancing around feeling swept the room. And so she decided to teach us this very easy, easy way to know the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to rush through it. I'm gonna rush through it. So the next time Pastor Martin pulls out this card, you can stand and say, yes, I can. 
And so here we go, the Ten Commandments. The first one is very easy. You shall have no other gods before me, just one, right? And I'm going to write backwards, so bear with me. So the second one, two, it looks like somebody is bowing down. So you shall not bow to idols, you will not have any idols. Three, if you fill in the three, you can make a beat. Do not blaspheme, do not um, dishonor God by, by you know, profaning his name and then it goes far deeper than that, but just to help us understand and memorize, right? The letter, the number four, uh, looks almost like a chair you can sit on to symbolize a day of rest, honor the Sabbath, what we're talking about today, right? Five looks almost like a baby carriage you can push it around, so honor your mother and father, right? Six, six feet under, you shall not murder. Seven, seven, you can make into an A, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, if you're writing an eight, this way. You have to write an S, so you shall not steal. Nine looks almost like a speech bowl, so you shall not bear false witness. And ten, if your neighbor has ten things, do not covet. And so those are the ten commandments that you can kind of keep in your, your back pocket the next time it should come up. But today we're focusing on that fourth commandment of honoring the Sabbath. Honoring the Sabbath. You see, in churches today, in Protestant churches, we have a very shallow understanding what that means. So I want to spend a bit of time talking about that. And the first is this. It's not meant to be this legalistic kind of approach to religion. Actually, the Bible in, in uh, Deuteronomy, we're given a reason. Or in the text that we read in Exodus, we're given a reason to honor the Sabbath. And you see, it says, after it says honor the Sabbath, it says, for God created. For God created. This is important. Do you mind just following along? It says, For God, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The reason why we're to honor the Sabbath is because God designed and created things this way. When he brought order to the unordered creation to where there was nothing, he built in rest and modeled it. If you grew up in church and you've heard sermons on this, you've heard God didn't do it because he was tired and he needed the rest, but he did it to model for us something that was so crucially important. But you see, it's not just about a day of not working. It's not just about a day of ceasing and sitting back, a day of inaction. The language of work goes far beyond our jobs. And to give us a better understanding of what the intention was with this command, we can go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the Ten Commandments are reiterated for God's people. And Moses says this, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The command to honor the Sabbath is not just a thing to say, inaction begins here, but it's to say, remember God. Remember what He's done. Delight in Him. Learn to trust in Him. Recognize who you are as His people and who He is as your God. And so God sets aside this day intentionally modeling rest for us. But in church today, when we talk about Sabbath, when we talk about not working, when we talk about dedicating a day to worship, there is a phrase that we've all said that comes to mind, and it's this, I don't have time. I don't have time. There are two responses that I have for that. The first is harsh. The first is this, when we say we don't have time, 
the Bible calls us on some level to prioritize and make it happen. See, God's people, when they were in the desert wandering and they received this commandment, they were taught to live it out. In Exodus chapter 16, right, the Israelites are wandering in the desert, they're hungry, they're grumbling, they're saying to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? At least there we were slaves, but we had food. Why did you bring us out? And so Moses turns to God and God says, I will provide, and he provides quail and manna, this kind of food, this flaky food that they would find in a harvest. And they're told, take what you need, not to hoard it. Some of them actually tried to hoard it, to take more than what they needed each day, and the next day it would rot. Right? There would be maggots and smell and have all kinds of problems. But the interesting thing was that on the sixth day, they were told to gather twice as much, and on the seventh day, it didn't rot. You see, Moses tells God's people, the Israelites, he says, Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you need to bake, boil what you need to boil, save whatever is left, and keep it until morning. The command was, do extra work to honor the Sabbath. Of course, what happened the next day? Some of the people, nevertheless, they went out looking for food, and they found none. And for us today, it's this idea, on some level, we need to fight to honor the Sabbath. We need to do that extra work, and pastors will talk about different ways they do this, of running errands, you know, outside of their Sabbath day, so that they can honor it. And it's a hard pill to swallow, but on some level, we need to make it happen. It's a part of our worship and faithfulness. The second thing, the second response to this phrase, I have no time, is that we need to learn to trust God and to rest in Him. There's a book entitled The Sabbath written by a man named Abraham Heschel. He's a Jewish rabbi and theologian. And he writes about Sabbath, and I appreciate so much of what he has to offer to the conversation, because honestly, Protestant Christians, our view of Sabbath, our understanding, it's very shallow compared to Jewish uh, individuals and even Catholics. They come from this much deeper understanding to the point that it might shock us. My parents, they do dry cleaning. Uh, they have a dry cleaner out on Queens Boulevard, and it's a very Jewish area that they're near. And one time I visited the store on a Saturday and I was outside just picking something up for them and I was so shocked to see so many Jewish people in just black clothes walking around when the sun is beating down. Like I was in shorts and flip-flops and I was like, I don't want to be in the sun. But they're in full garb walking together. And it was a bit of a culture shock for me, like, wow. And my first gut reaction was to say, this is such a closed, tight view of what it means to worship God. But I realized, we're the ones with the shallow view of Sabbath. In this book, The Sabbath, Abraham Heschel, he writes a lot about this, and I don't agree with everything, because he kind of brings up some ideas that are, kind of separate the internal life, and what we do with time, and what we do with stuff. And, but he does present a very rich story of what it looked like to honor the Sabbath. And his daughter actually writes about it in the introduction. And I love that his daughter wrote it because it was a story of something that was familiar, something of family to them. That even when we do something and we don't fully understand, we teach one another, we teach our children. And this is what she writes. Mom and dad were preparing at the end of the week for the Sabbath meal. And she says they were frantically trying to remember what they might have forgotten to prepare. Had the kettles boiled, was the oven turned on, then suddenly it was time. 20 minutes before sunset. Whatever hadn't been finished in the kitchen, we simply left behind a 
as we lit the candles and blessed the arrival of this event. Another Christian author, uh, his name is Wayne Mueller, he says the Sabbath is not dependent on our readiness to stop. We do not stop when we are finished. We do not stop when we complete our phone calls, finish our project, get through this stack of messages, or get out this report that is due tomorrow. We stop because it is time to stop. Honoring the Sabbath is trusting God's design for our time. Say, yes, there's so much more I can do, but there's a time to stop, to worship Him, to trust Him. And God designed this from the beginning. Now, design is important, and design is so crucial. Even churches will think about the space that you walk into, the experience when you first enter a room. Right? I personally am an Apple fan. I, I have been since college. Uh, my first iPhone, my first smartphone was an iPhone 4. And actually, I got it in college by working to pay for my own phone bill because my family was on Verizon, and Verizon did not have the iPhone back then. And so I picked up more work so that I could have an iPhone, and it was the worst decision, worst financial decision I've made, maybe even to today. Right? As a college student, I was spending so much money just to have this phone. But you see, Apple, I appreciate that they think through design, they think through user experience so well. And Apple stores are actually very similar wherever you go. It's kind of open space, Greeters are strategically positioned to welcome you and direct you to the next person. The next person directs you to the next, and they kind of all work together in this well-crafted space. They even have all of the devices set out, and not in some like trial mode where it's like locked into a wall and all you can really do is just one or two things, but people leave all sorts of weird pictures thinking that no one will see them. They write weird messages on these devices because you can use them to their full. And they think about user experience to create something special. Apple actually thought of a very specific design issue, and this might date some of us. Um, Apple actually decided they wanted to get rid of a frustration that they saw that consumers were experiencing. That feeling that when you first buy a tech product, you take it home, you're excited, you spend all this money and you're ready to use it, you open it up and you realize you have to charge the device first. And it was this frustration that maybe teens today have never had to feel. Maybe if you're a little older, the equivalent frustration is buying a product, taking it home, and seeing that small label that says batteries not included. But Apple decided, you know, when we test our products, we're just going to charge them for the user so that they don't need to feel that frustration. It was a design issue that solved a problem that created something good for their consumers. And similarly, God designed the world. He created all of these things, and he brought order to the unordered of space and in time. In that first week, he created space for a seizing of work so that his people could delight in him, so that his people could trust him. You see, there's so much we can say about this Sabbath day. I think there are sermons that can be preached, series that can be go on, but there's one thing I want to focus in on in talking about Sabbath today. It's that honoring the Sabbath is not just about Sunday. Honoring the Sabbath is not just about a singular day of the week. 
And yes, the command is to keep this day separate, holy, set apart for worship. But honoring the Sabbath goes far beyond just a 24-hour period. You see, in the Bible, nowhere does God say, I only want a portion of your life to be mine. He actually calls us to give all of ourselves to Him, our hearts, our lives, our everything. And so it would be bizarre to think that honoring the Sabbath, that God only wants us to worship Him on this time period, and maybe there are rules for this time period, but nothing else matters. That is a big lie. And it has to do with the fact that our understanding of Sabbath is relatively shallow. But honoring the Sabbath has to do with all of our time, every day of the week, learning to live a life of worship. Now this is important for all of us. It doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter what you do. It's an issue that we all face. Working with youth group students and even children, this is something that comes up. They behave one way in church, and when they go elsewhere, when they go to school, or maybe even at home, they behave a completely different way. So much to the point that they're almost ashamed of bringing the two together. This problem doesn't end once you're not a teen. See, in college, there's this, this thing, and it makes me wary of, of college-centric ministries at different schools, where these Christian groups in, on campus become, honestly, ways for students to get together to find people to go partying with, to go out drinking with. And the culture becomes cautious, they get together on a Saturday, they go out drinking, they get wasted, they come to church on Sunday, all feeling guilty, and it's rinse and repeat, and they continue through that process, and there's this disconnect of what they will do on what's called a Sabbath day and the rest of their lives. This problem continues on even when we work and when we continue in our lives, especially in an area like New York where work can become this cutthroat environment where you need to do what you got to do to get what you need to do, get all the things that you need. And there becomes this disconnect between who we are on church, at church on a Sunday, and who we are the rest of the week. I kind of go through this with any, anyone serving, maybe on like a praise team or even in a teaching position. And I say that there should be a coherency in the lives that we live. That worship shouldn't just be about what we do on a Sunday. That worship should be this thing that we think about our lives. And what we do on a Sunday should be the buildup of a life of worship. What we do on a Sunday should be a springboard to live for God the rest of the week. To have this huge disconnect is a huge problem for Christians. You see, talking about our faith is very difficult. It's very difficult for different reasons. Yes, it's uncomfortable, it's sensitive, especially in our country and where we are and all of these different things. But I wonder if there's an aspect of it is because this kind of self built accountability, this impending judgment, that if people knew I was a Christian, and they saw the way I was living, there would be so much shame. And you see, if we think about honoring the Sabbath, yet there's this huge disconnect in the way that we live, can we say that we're really honoring the Sabbath? To help us narrow in, when we think about this liturgy of our lives, it's really about structuring the unintentional areas of our lives for worship. See, God in creation brought structure to the unstructured, and I believe that we as those created in His image do the same. This is a problem for everyone to think about. Teens and, and students learn to do this. 
They learn to use unstructured time for productive things, and parents will nag and say, hey, you need to learn to prioritize and learn about time management, and it's common throughout. Uh, it doesn't matter which church you go to or where you go to, it's something that students struggle to learn. But it doesn't stop there. See, post-college, it happens on a deeper level, right? Because in our society, we're built, our program for life is built up to a certain age, around age 22 or so. And once we're done with school, suddenly there's no structure. We can continue in education, we can go looking for work. No one is telling us how to structure our lives. And so young people in their 20s need to figure out what's important. They need to reclaim this liturgy of life. You see, one thing that can happen is that we start hooking on to this dream, hooking on to this vision of what our lives should be, shaped by our culture. And today, the American dream is no longer about home ownership and 2.5 kids. It's about flexible work life, freedom to travel, and not falling into the false promises of security of yesterday. This is the absurd American dream, and we get hooked onto things like this, the picture that the world says our lives must look this way. And we start to chase, and we start to lose track, and we never slow down to evaluate, is this honoring God, or am I just chasing things that the world presents to me? We can get lost until we crash into midlife crisis, until we crash into something. And the call for the Christian is to slow down, and think about how we're shaping our lives. Couples can think about this together. See, a lot of couples um, guard what's called a date night, right? They make holy and set aside this time where they commit to doing this together. For some, it might be the complete opposite where you decide to set aside time together, but you're not together. It's time where you don't need to see your significant other. You don't need to bear the weight of all the children at home and you can just have time to do your thing. But we all think about this. When children are involved, it's especially heavy because now we're not just shaping our own views of time, we're shaping theirs. Even for older families, older couples, older individuals, empty nesters and retirees, this is something so significant to think about. My parents are now nearing the age of, of having to think about retirement, um, and they're preparing in the ways that they can. And one thing that I stop them and tell them, I look them in the eye as serious as I can, and I say, you need hobbies. Because I'm so worried. They've been working for so long, and that's all they know, that once that's taken away, their lives might crumble. And it might crumble in the form of, you know, trying to interrupt my life. <laughs> and so I sit them down and I say, you need hobbies. And I imagine my mom being one of those Korean grandmas or ladies who walk around hiking with the visor and the sticks and, and so I suggest bird watching and she looks at me like what's bird watching and it's a conversation to have but I think it's so important to think about. And the question I want us to think about today is how will we shape the liturgy of our lives? See it's simple. I'm not trying to say anything too complicated today but I think it's so hard to slow down and think about these things. It's so hard to bring meaningful change in our view of time because the world continues to demand for us to work at a certain pace. So in our grace groups today, we're actually gonna be talking about a rule of life and trying to practice this together. And a rule of life, the history of it, it comes from the monastic traditions of the third to fifth centuries. 
where Christians were dissatisfied with what they were seeing in the secular realm around them, the, the, the world, and, and the ungodliness of the churches even. And this desire to separate from society and come together and agree on a plan for life to order their days with prayer, work, and the scriptures. And this is what we call a rule of life. Now, I'm kind of weary in church to talk about any hard-set rules because the immediate thought might be that it's a crippling law with a lot of guilt. But this is meant to be a guide for us. That word rule is rooted in the Greek word trellis, which is about pruning, cutting off what is not helpful, what is not good, to make room for what is. And so this rule of life is to serve as a roadmap, roadmap of sorts. It's meant to be a temporary guide. It's not meant to be this ideal picture of what life should be. But it's meant to be, this is where I want to go. What's, what are the steps that I can take? And so in our grace groups, if you are plugged in, and if you're not, please speak to one of our leaders. Um, we're asking everyone to slow down. You see, we've been doing this. First, we started reading scripture together. Then we focused in on specific smaller passages to hear from God. We went through a practical Lectio Divina, and if you're not familiar with it, it, it may have been uncomfortable. And then we went on further to go beyond what is the scripture saying to say, God, what are you saying to me in my life? And now we're taking it yet another step to say, God, where, where are you calling me to change? Specifically in my life. And so we're going to think about different areas of our lives. And maybe for a lot of you, the place that you feel you need work is this area of having a firsthand life with Christ. Maybe for some of you, it's other things such as health, physical, mental, emotional, work-life balance, your stewardship of finances and your time, your relationships with family, friends, with community, or maybe even partnership with the church. See, the church is where we find companions for the journey. It's hard to think about time and think about honoring and worshiping God. It's not the sleek and attractive thing to think about when it comes to spirituality, but God doesn't call us to do it alone. He calls the church to come together to work through it together. And so we're going to listen. We're going to sit with the scriptures, listen to God, and take action. And in thinking about taking action, I want to encourage you all to think about your weeks, specifically your weeks. What can you shift in your week, in this seven-day period? What can you think about doing more of? What can you think about actually scaling back on to intentionally shape this liturgy of our weeks? See, America is actually pretty good, seems pretty good, about thinking about the year. We think about vacations annually. We think about uh, bonuses. We think about New Year's resolutions. But when it comes to weekly living, a lot of the language is just not good. And it seems like we're scraping by for the weekend. Wednesday is hump day. Friday we say TGIF. Monday, the culture is terrible. And the same can be said about our churches. We look at retreats. We look at coming to church to worship on holidays. We think about annual short-term mission trips. But when it comes to week to week, it's almost as though we starve ourselves. And so as we think about how to shift and how to learn to honor God more, we want to think about our weekly rhythms where rubber meets the road. All this is not simply just to be better people, but it's learning to trust God. And so while the monks may separate from society, we might not be physically separating, but in a sense, we will be standing against the grain of culture. In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, it says this, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect. And so we think of God when we think of these things. And the starting point is Sabbath, not the day, but this place of worship. And from this place of worship, we step out into the world. And when we come back together, we celebrate what God has done in our midst. 